Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Thanks for joining me on this episode of The Mentor, ESQ. I have joining me today, I begged and pleaded for her to come back, and she agreed to, my friend Amy Richter. Hi, Amy. Hi, Andrew. So for today's episode, I thought I'd do something a little different. I thought it would be fun if we generally alternated, took turns, spent this next half hour or so asking each other questions. Now that I got a microphone in front of you and I'm recording it, sort of all the things I've always wanted to ask my friend Amy, and I thought in fairness, I would give you the opportunity to ask questions about of me, and it could be about me, but we'll, we'll have some ground rules here just so we keep things interesting and fair. Primary ground rule is somehow the question has to be tied into the legal world, and nothing too personal, but... We could also ask maybe an interesting tidbit that someone may not know about us because they see us as these professionals. And right now I'm dressed down a little bit because it's summertime while we're recording this. If you see me online, I'm in a you know button-down shirt, but generally I'm in suits. People look at me as sort of the buttoned-up lawyer, and you know there's a side of me that's not the buttoned-up side, and right back at you, right? I mean, we've been together uh, in social circles over many years, so... I'm going to kick it off, all right? Oh, no. I'm scared. Do you think in order to be a successful attorney that you have to have a love of animals? Absolutely. Why do you say that? I say that because I think that you have to intrinsically care about something that needs your help. That's what an animal is, right? An animal is, is, is like a baby that you have to take care of them and you have to figure out what they need. You have to feed them and nurture them and love them. Um, and that's what being a lawyer is in a lot of ways. I mean, that's part of it. Not all of it, but that's part of it. Tell me about your animals. I have seven cats. Names? Oh, really? Yeah, let's go. Oh, boy. Fast. Okay, I can do it. Ready? Yep. Cleo. Angel, Spike, King, Seven, Buddha, and Bits. How many cats do I have? You have now five? Six. Oh, you got another one. Names? All right. Kitty, otherwise known as Mr. Awesome. Lucky, who is an Instagram star. For all of those with their IG accounts, look up My Little Lucky Lady. That is Lucky, who we adopted from Beth Stern has an amazing story. Now, before I go into the other names of the cats, I cannot take credit of this. My wife is really the crazy cat lady. and But when we did meet, I had two and she had four. And uh, the family has changed in sizes. But all right, so we've got Kitty, Lucky, Luna, Fitz, Finn, and Emma. Okay. Those I, are six. I have two outside cats. Do those count? Yeah, of course. Grumpers, because he's grumpy. <laughs> And little one. All rescues? All rescues. Ours as well. And, you know, I think what my wife says is that you have to 
give a voice to the voiceless and defend those who can't defend themselves. And that certainly applies to animals. And it applies to pe- a lot of people, children, children. And so I agree. I think that you have to love animals to be a great attorney. I have some friends who don't love animals. And I always say to them, I don't know how I'm friends with you if you don't love animals, but I'm still friends with them. But I still have this little <laughs> feeling somewhere in the back of my mind that there's something wrong with them. How could you not love animals? It's true. And I'd love to do something law-related to help animals one day. Would you? And if you could, what would that be? All right. Well, I will make that commitment to do that with you. Uh, Something to help animals. And uh, we can put it out there to our listeners. They can email us the contact information's uh, on the podcast. You can find it. Contact us. Tell us what you think would be a good way. Obviously, there's a lot of animal rights organizations. We'd have to find something novel. Something different. Maybe something with the airlines, because that's something that really annoys me. When animals die in transport, maybe something about an animal bill of rights, maybe. travel. I don't know. I'm open to it. Okay. I'm with you. I feel like that at some point in our careers, we should take our experience and do something for the greater good with it. I don't I don't know exactly what, but whenever I think about that, I think about doing it for some for some sort of animals program or something. You know, people make fun of others that have lots of cats, call them the crazy cat people, right? And you've got to be insane. People think that my family's insane with all the cats, but I don't think people are crazy at all and they have cats. I think they're just amazing loving people that give of themselves to these little animals. And the more, the merrier. And I think it says a lot about somebody. So someone who can be really kind and take in animals and adopt animals and lots of them is someone that I want to hang out with. Me too. I want to hang out with you, Andrew Smiley, and all your cats. That's why we hang out with each other. It must be. We send each other cat pictures. (laughs) It must be. All right. You're up. My question. Yeah. Okay. So in matrimonial law, we have bench trials, um, no juries. They would not trust a jury to make some of the decisions that have to be made in our cases. And I know that your cases involve juries. Right. So I'm fascinated with the whole jury process because I really have never done it before. Tell me the most interesting thing about picking a jury. Jurors are a really tricky thing. They're the huge variable in the work that I do as a personal injury lawyer. Clients will come in and they'll tell me, I know a jury is going to give me more money than what's being offered. I know once it goes to trial, I'm going to get this. They don't know anything. And it's my job to tell them that because you just don't know what a jury is going to do. And jurors lie in jury selection. They smile at you. They nod at you. And I've had some smile at me and nod at me in jury selection. I put them on, I, I keep them somehow if I can on the on the jury panel, which isn't always so easy to do. And uh, they smile and nod at me throughout the trial. And it's 50-50 at the end of the trial. That person smiling and nodding has gone against me. And that person smiling and nodding has gone for me. And that's what's so discerning. And that's why when you don't have someone that you know is trained in the law listening to your legal arguments, like what you have in a bench trial, here when we've got, you know, big stakes, big money riding on what a jury's going to do, leaving it in their hands is a scary thing because you just don't know. And I used to I used to feel jurors were more predictable, and now I find them much less predictable. There's so many 
variables out there and so many ways that jurors will look things up and look on their phone and have their own ideas and not really pay attention to what I think you're trying to focus them on. And it's a scary thing. So the, the one, I've had a couple of interesting jury experiences. I'll share just a few. I lost a trial once that I was convinced I was going to win. And there was one holdout. He was the dissenter who was going my way. And he worked, he was uh, an assistant to Spike Lee. And I just knew he and I hit it off because I actually did a, a, a thesis in undergraduate on Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing in, in a psychology seminar I took. So I'm very into Spike Lee. I had the fortune to meet him and tell him the story of how I did a, something on Do the Right Thing in school. And he wow. said, how'd you do? I said, I got an A. He said, cool, man. And I said, can we take a selfie? He said, sure. But that guy I stayed in touch with afterwards. And I spoke to afterwards, man, I was pulling for you the whole way. These people were crazy in this jury. They weren't listening to me. They didn't get it. I got it. I was with you the whole way, you know, and we stayed in touch. And uh, he used to send me tickets to things. We ran into each other. So that was a pretty cool experience. On the other side, just by way of not knowing what jurors can do, I had a case that I've talked about on this podcast where ultimately I was successful and got a good jury verdict. It was a young man who was intoxicated who fell on the tracks and got run over by a subway train and, and lost his leg. I remember that case. You remember that trial, right? That was over yes. 10 years ago. And during the trial, it was a couple weeks long. We lost a juror who said, he, you know, the trial's too long. He's got a family trip and he's not coming back. We had to put an alternate in, but we said, you know what? Let's see if he'll speak with us. So we agreed with the judge and my adversary. We took this juror who is now off the jury and brought him back into the judge's room. And we all got to ask him questions on his take of the trial up to that point and which way he was leaning and what he was thinking. Now, this is a guy who I thought was my ace in the hole. My client was in his late 20s, went out, was intoxicated at the time, fell down, passed out, got run over. This juror member who was being discharged was in his late 20s. In jury selection, he said he was a concierge for a local boutique hotel. He would meet up with his friends afterwards. He'd go out drinking and take trains all the time. And I said, this guy's perfect for me. So sure enough, I was so upset. I was doing everything I could. Please don't leave. The trial's almost done. Stay on. When we finally got to speak to him after he got discharged, he said, man, he goes, you know, I do all that stuff. He's like, but if you're stupid enough to get drunk and fall on the tracks, maybe I pay for some of your medical bills, but that's about it. And he said, and as for losing a leg, he says, I have a buddy who lost his foot. He's got a prosthetic. He's stronger than me and he could out wrestle me anytime. So I don't really feel too bad for this guy. Wow. And I was stunned. And that's when I said, wow. Isn't it amazing that you think one thing, I mean, it's so hard to perceive what someone else is thinking and what someone else is doing and, and a jury selection and then talking to them after is one indication of that. I mean, I always even find it fascinating, you know, trying a case. It's the idea is that you have to get the pieces of evidence out into the room, whether it's a judge hearing it or a jury hearing it, so they could take all those little tiny pieces, put them together and come out with the version of the story that you want told. And you sometimes don't know that they pick up, they pick some piece that you just, that wasn't even something that you intended and it yeah. can make a big difference. It's, it's yeah. very, very difficult. It, it cuts both ways, right? You can use your powers of persuasion to persuade a juror that wouldn't go over too well with a judge. You know, I've had some bench trials when we bring cases against the court of claims in the state of New York, against the state, it's in the court of claims and you don't have a jury. And I try and give my opening and summation and the judge stops. Mr. Smiley, save that stuff for your jury trials. It cuts me right off. 
Like, wait a second, Judge. You know, I'm trying to, can, you know, I need to persuade you also. It's and, very and, different. It's very, very different. We give opening arguments. We don't normally do closings because yep. we do post-trial memos. But yeah. I know that it's very different when we cross-examine experts. That's where you see that it's very different, a jury trial or, or a uh, bench trial. Because the judge wants you to cut to the chase with your expert. He doesn't want eight hours of you doing stuff that you would do in front of a jury to make, to show, you know, how this guy didn't do this and this guy didn't do that, when actually it doesn't really make a damn bit of <laughs> right. difference, right? At the end right. of the day, that's, yeah. that's a big difference. Have you ever used a jury consultant? I've never used one. I know people that do use jury consultants. I know people have done focus groups. They've done mock juries. We've looked into doing that where you can actually pay companies. They will find people in the venue where you are, whatever town, and offer to pay them $15 and a free lunch to come sit in and listen and you videotape them. I have just found that there's no way you can recreate a trial in a way that I just don't feel the results would be as predictable. That's my personal preference. I do know some firms that swear by it and they've done it. Yeah. I'm I'm almost glad we don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind doing it for the experience, but I know that it's a it's a whole different it's a whole different presentation. All right, so I have a question for you as a okay. divorce attorney. Two things that the public seems to think is the case that I want to know if it's true or not. So it's a two part question. Part number one: Is it true in a divorce that you get half, and someone says, "I want half of everything"? That's part one. Part two. If one spouse confronts and finds and has irrefutable proof that the other spouse cheated on them, is intimate with somebody else, does that benefit them? Uh, does it benefit the non-cheating spouse in the divorce? So those are my two parts. Can I take question number two first? Of course. Question no. number two is the most asked question pretty much in my world by almost every single client that I see. And my answer is, is that there is no financial penalty for bad behavior. And as much as my clients don't like to hear that, their spouse can cheat on them with anyone and everyone. And as long as it doesn't have an impact on their children, which is the only time it would be relevant, it will have no impact on division of finances. Now, that being said, there's something that we all refer to as, can I curse on the, pod, on the podcast? Do it. Go ahead. As the asshole rule, okay? <laughs> and that is that we believe that if a judge thinks that someone is a total asshole, they are more likely to give a good decision uh, to the other side. Uh -huh. So, therefore, while it actually has no legal bearing, sometimes you want your judge to know about the other side's bad behavior for that reason. How do you get it in before the judge? How do you bring well, it Well, so here's the interesting thing about what our area of law. We see the same judge from the day the case starts until the day the case is over, okay? So that means that preliminary conferences, pretrial conferences, motions, everything is in front of this judge. And then a year later, we get a trial date also in front of this judge. So by the time we get to trial, that judge basically knows every single thing about this case that there is to know from the whole year of coming to court every six weeks, making motions, saying how bad this one is, how, how, how terrible that one is. So, you know, judges have a real good flavor by the time that we get into a courtroom about what's uh. happening. Now, they say they're the finder of fact 
but they're also the judge who has to decide the case at the end of the day. They say that that doesn't color them in any way. And I believe them. They probably hate everybody by the time, you know, a year of this case is over. But I do, I do think that, you know, bad behavior should be pointed out when necessary. Cheating, unfortunately, in this world, nobody cares, you know? There's real bad behavior, yeah. you know? But if your wife, if your wife cheats on you with the, with, with the pool boy, yeah. if your husband cheats on you with the nanny. You've seen it all. We've seen it all. That's my advice, ladies. Don't get a hot nanny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. Is that when you usually see it go bad? Is that the scenario usually yeah. you see the husband leaving for the hot nanny? Or his, or his assistant who looks just like his wife but 20 years younger. Wow. Uh, works both ways. Yeah. I, I, I'm an equal opportunity. I represent men and women. I don't like one or the other better. You know, I, I take my clients as, a, as I find them. I help them through their situation. Now, as the answer to the first part of your question, 50-50. Not necessarily. New York has something called equitable distribution, which doesn't mean equal distribution. It means fair. So it all gets looked at in a in the grand scheme, long-term marriage, children, everybody worked during the marriage and contributed, whether it was money or time and taking care of things. For the most part, you're going to get an equal distribution of, of what I call, you know, hard assets houses, bank accounts, retirement accounts. Usually 50-50. Usually 50-50, kind of that kind of stuff. Where, where there's there's a little bit of, uh, you know, where there's play is in people's businesses. Whether or not if someone has a business that's worth $65 million, you know, they're, the, the spouse that didn't work in that business is entitled to half of $65 million. Right. You know, there's there's a lot that goes on, and that's the kind of stuff that you fight about. Or where someone puts separate property, in other words, their separate money from whether they're before marriage or an inheritance into something that then becomes a marital asset, whether or not they get that money back, like a back out, then it might not necessarily be 50-50. But for the, for the general concept, if you have a long marriage and it's a financial partnership, they're going to divide things 50-50. All right. You're up. Oh, no. Okay. I can keep asking you. No, nope, I got it. So if you could practice any other kind of law besides what you do now and some animal stuff, because we already covered that, yeah. what would you want to do? In the area of law. Yes. Or you don't have to practice. Maybe you- Be involved in be it. Be involved in it. What, would, what, would, what strikes your fancy? I always thought it would be cool to be a sports agent. You know, but I think after a while that would probably be tired because it's mostly contracts and then you have these high profile people bossing you around. So that's sort of a, an idea in a perfect world, but maybe not. More likely than not, I think maybe a federal prosecutor. I'm so impressed whenever I meet people who uh, have been in a U.S. attorney's office as a prosecutor and our type of work as trial attorneys, I think that's sort of the cream of the crop. You're taking the brilliant lawyer that could go to the top firm in the country. They're in the top of their law school class. So they have that intellectual brilliance. And they also have the trial skills chops. So I've got the trial skills chops and I'm smart, but I'm not brilliant. And so when I see these lawyers uh, and what they can do and how they handle these serious cases... I think that would be pretty cool. So maybe I wouldn't want to do that as for a living, but it'd be fun to maybe try one of those cases. And I'd also thought it would be fun to maybe defend the case. I mentioned with another guest we had on here, Royce Russell, who does criminal defense work. 
I said, I think it would be a lot easier to convince one person to find reasonable doubt out of 12 than have to convince, you know, six people or 12 people to go my way in a jury. He disagreed a little bit with me, but uh, I still feel that. And I think that I could probably be really creative and really good at coming up with reasonable doubt in a trial. So I've always wanted to do something like that. I must correct you. I think you are brilliant. Uh Aha. That's nice of you. Thank you. You're welcome. Your turn. All right. What have you enjoyed most that has come as a result of being in the legal world? I think that what I've enjoyed most, well, there's two things that that I didn't necessarily know I was really good at until I started to do them, right? One was trying cases. Like, we don't get to try a lot of cases. And in the last, you know, in the beginning of my career, I was trying cases sort of like on the fly. No one taught me how to try cases. I was just sent to court and do it. And then as my career progressed, when I started working with Susan Bender, who became my second mentor, she actually taught me how to try cases, but like, I kind of knew, I, I have a, I, I felt like it was instinctual. Like there was something about me that kind of knew how to do it, but I just needed someone to, to show me like how to do it. It's hard, it's hard to explain. So when I started working for her, she had me prep her, I would second seat her. And there's nothing like second seating someone who's amazing, who's an amazing trial lawyer, because you can learn so many things that you need to learn that you can't you know, there's no other way to do it is but to sit there. And I remember the day when there's there's two days. The day that she was doing it, and for the first time, I said, "I wish I was doing it," as opposed to saying, "Oh, thank God it's her, not me." Right? <laughs> and then the second the second time when I knew it was like about time to sort of start doing it on my own, she said she objected to something. I and the judge said, "Why?" And she looked at me, and I wrote the answer <laughs> down. And she and she gave my answer, and the judge said. Sustained. So it, right. was, it was like, she's like, that's, she and I joked, that's when we both knew that I was ready. So I guess that's the first thing that I got to do. The second thing I got to do was be president of the Bar Association. When I was put online to be president, there was six years between the time that I started as, as the, I guess, the, the secretary um, up until when you turned in terms of president-elect, it was six years. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, good. It's like a really long time away because I was petrified. I was scared. Yeah. I was like, I can't do this. I'm not as smart as all these other people who have done this before me. How can I be president after so and so who is so accomplished? And yeah. so, you know, I it's like a it's like a whole thing. And I really think that I needed to do that to show myself that I'm just as good, if not better, than any of those people. You know, I was just as successful in my year as president as all the other big wigs who came before me. And that really taught me something. So I was glad that I had the opportunity to do that, to speak in front of large groups in the courthouse, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I mean, you don't get to do that. And that is valuable because you know you can hold your own anywhere yeah. after that. It's really, that's a good point you raise that I just want to touch on is, and we spoke about it when you were here previously on The Mentor about how it's important for young attorneys to get involved in bar organizations. And I don't think we can overstate that because you and I have found such fulfillment from our work. We've both been the president of of substantial bar organizations. I was the past president of the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers and the New York City Trial Lawyers Alliance I was the president of. And 
when you rise through the ranks in these bar associations, as you and I have to where you're the president, you have to hold all these positions first, board of directors, then it's secretary, treasurer, vice president. And, and you, it's a great way to meet people that you, you would just wouldn't meet otherwise, adversaries, colleagues, different areas of practice. You learn from others and then you learn a certain skill. It's a skill of sitting in a boardroom of sitting around a table. I was just in a meeting with the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers up in Cooperstown yesterday. And, you know, I'm sitting in a room with lawyers from all over the state. It's a statewide organization. We have Buffalo, Syracuse, people from Brooklyn, Manhattan, everywhere. And all prominent lawyers, plaintiff and divorce. We have judges and retired judges in that room. And issues come up and you got to speak your mind. You can't just sit on your hands. And it takes a little while to get that comfort where you can speak your mind and do that. So you're learning that skill. You're learning to meet other people. You're, you're meeting other people and learning a skill. And it's just so helpful in, in your growth. And you and I now can look back and, and see these uh, friendships we've made, professional and otherwise, from these organizations. It's led to business. It's led to just enjoying the profession more, the collegiality of it. So I really think it's important, even though that they're declining some aren't. And my suggestion is get involved in an organization that does something that means something to you, even if it's lawyers for cats, right? Right. Maybe that's what we should do. Maybe we should start a little organization of lawyers, and it could be a social organization of lawyers that feel that it's important, animal rights are important. And it could be a lawyers for animal rights, the Brooklyn division or the Manhattan division. I'm in. And you get similarly situated people with similar interests to meet. And that's where things develop, right? Yeah. Harvard Law School, just I just read an article about it, just came out with their first class for animal policy law. It's huh. They're going to be in this, this coming school year, it's going to be something. So I, I, you know, we're, we're right on, on trend with our animals, there but we go. we've been on trend for a long time with that's our true. animals. I, I, I think, you know, what you're talking about with the, with the being involved in bar associations and professional organizations, it gives you an ease with yourself with other people that you can't really, I mean, I guess there are other ways to get it, but you asked me my, you know, what, as a result of my career, like what I've gotten to to do. And I, I have an ease now that, that I didn't have before. I think I was president of the bar association. I really, I really think I do. Um, ease in the courtroom and ease in, in, in a podcast and ease on a stage teaching. You know, I, I, I think it's something that, that's very been very, very good for me in my career. And I'm sure you feel the same way. I do. And it's a lot of it's innate. It's some people just don't feel comfortable public speaking. Some uh, are more comfortable than others, but it can also be a learned skill. And the only way you're going to excel at it or get better, even if you already start at a pretty good level is by practice, right? And now we've been practicing for a long enough time that we can look back and say all these times getting up and talking and being in these groups and presenting and whatever it is we're doing, where we're talking in rooms of other lawyers and judges, that is bettering ourselves. And the only way you get to be where you and I are now, and we still got a long journey to go, uh, hopefully, is to start at a younger age and just get on that track and just have have confidence in yourself and be yourself, but just put yourself into maybe different situations that you wouldn't feel comfortable in to start. I agree. That's, that's what I said before. Find the thing that scares you the most and do it because that propels you to the next level. As you keep doing... The same thing over and over again. You're comfortable with it. It doesn't, you don't change. Like you can't change until you move forward somehow. And somehow moving forward is scary. 
especially if it's something that you've never done before. I would give that advice to young to young attorneys too. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Well, so is it my turn to ask you a question? Or is you it get one more. Test? I Let's get go. one more. One All more. right. I got a question. All right. Tell me about your worst court appearance ever. <laughs> well, I have these horrible dreams. I don't know if any other trial lawyers out there have it. It's these dreams of being in court and having to like get up and give an opening statement and not being prepared and not knowing the file. And it's it's frightening. I guess people talk about when they're not prepared for tests. It's a similar sort of thing. So I still have those dreams quite a lot. My worst trial experience, you know what? Um, it doesn't have to be a trial experience because I think yeah. we're prepared for our trials. Give yeah. me just your worst, like you went in for a motion, you thought it was going <laughs> to be you know, an easy thing and you ended up in jail. I don't know. Something like that. We don't have anything like you know, that. I don't have anything dramatic that's happened. The worst thing that's happened is cases that I've thought I've won and won big that I've lost. That's the worst thing because it's hard getting over a loss. The, the, the losses, I get it. The losses hurt a lot more than the victories feel good. Right? I agree. I agree. But I've been fortunate that I haven't had too, nothing embarrassing happen, nothing too crazy happen, and certainly nothing that I can think of at the moment that really jumps out at me. Did you have something happen to you that uh, you remember that was pretty no, crazy? Only my first court appearance. Really? Oh, you want to hear about my first court appearance? Sure. We'll do it and then All we'll right, wrap up. Uh, really quick. My first court appearance, my boss said, here, go to court. He hands me papers. I don't know what's going on. I find the courthouse. I walk in. There's like 150 people in the room. It was like this big civil calendar part. I get up there. It starts and it's over. And the only thing I hear is settle order on notice. And I don't know (laughs) what that means or whether I won or I lost. And it turns out I lost. And I went back to my office and I cried. Oh, man. But here's the moral of the story. My boss at the time, Steve, my mentor, said to me, was it bad? And I said, yeah. And he said, was it really, really, really bad? And I said, yeah. He said, it'll never be that bad again. And he was right. That's it. Look, I've had things happen that I wasn't happy with, a screw up in a case, or you find out something you could have done better, you forgot to ask, you forgot to do. And that's the type of stuff that keeps you up at night or you feel bad about. But that's where wisdom comes from, right? And I get it now. I never used to understand it when people talk about wisdom. And I'm just now turning 48 and I've been practicing law for 20 plus years and I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get why my father is so wise at 81 years old and practicing for over 50 years. Because you just see a lot, right? And you learn a lot and you've made mistakes. That's right. And it's in all aspects of life. It's sports, people mess up and regret it. It's, it's learning from your mistakes. And that's where wisdom comes from. It's from having seen things and learned from them to better guide you in the future. Yeah, I was going to say, there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. We all make them. It's what you do when you make the mistake. It's, it's owning up to it and saying, ah, I messed up. How yep. do I fix it? For young lawyers, you make a mistake, don't hide it and try to put it under another piece of paper so no one sees. You can't fix it if we don't know about it, right? And then it's learning not to make that same mistake again. And that's the only way we get better. And we continue to get better. That's it. Like a fine wine. Like a fine wine. We get better with age. That's right. Well, Amy, it was so much fun having you back. Thank you. Thank you for asking me back. And uh, we'll keep doing this. We'll keep getting together once in a while. I'd love to have you back for future podcasts and chat more. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you out there for listening to this episode of The Mentor ESQ, joining in on a little chat session with me and my friend Amy Richter. As always, you can feel free to reach out to me by email. Uh, and Amy, her contact information is available on this podcast as well. You can reach out to both of us with any questions you have. This is what we do. We like to talk with other lawyers and mentor and help people. And feel free to reach out. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to share it with your friends, your colleagues, and classmates. I'd really appreciate it if you give us a good rating and a review. And I look forward to having you on the next episode of The Mentor ESQ. I'm Andrew Smiley.